Hey, we're just absolutely thrilled that you're here. My name is Neil Hubacher. I'm pastor of the Harbor with an awesome leadership team. And uh, ever since January 17th-ish, we've been in our Harbor 101 series. And uh, to this point, we've been answering the question, who are we? And of course, the answer to that question is twofold. We are a... We're a church. Good job. Who's that? Is that Jenna? Thank you, JV. Okay. Look in the front page of your bulletin, Jenna. <clears throat> we are a haven for the broken, Genevieve. The second answer to that question is we are a launch to the nations. And as we continue in this series, we're going to get into more of the what are we doing? You know, what, what, what do we see ourselves doing here at the harbor? And today, the first answer to that question is we are loving God. Everyone say loving God. When Jesus was asked in Mark 10, 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important, his answer came from what he would have learned as a boy, the Shema Yisrael from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So my heart tonight uh, for us here at the harbor is we want to stir up a holy love for God. Some of you may know the writer A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor, I believe late 1800s into early 1900s. And in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he correctly states that what the church has slowly lost without realizing it is a knowledge of the Most High God. That it's our low view of God that is a source of really all of our other problems. We've missed just the key of intimacy with God. So recapturing this high view of God is at the heart of us becoming a church, a people who love God extravagantly. You know, our grandparent church, Antioch Community Church of Waco, Texas, they have as a motto, a passion for Jesus and for his purposes. A passion for Jesus and for his purposes on the earth. And we are descended from them, and that is very much a part of our heart also. We want to have a passion for Jesus and a passion for his purposes. But before we even get into what does it look like for us to be loving God, a people who love God, I want to assure you of something, and that is that our ability to love God is utterly and totally dependent upon us receiving the truth of God's love for us. Some of you know Romans 5.8, right? God demonstrates his own love for us while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for, his, for our sins. Excuse me. He loved us. That is the foundation for all that we're saying today is that he loved us. And if you're like me and you're out there, you know, um, I would hear this kind of message like loving God. That's what we need to do. And instantly I'd go into do, do, do. I got to do more. How do I love you better? And there's, there's, there's not something terrible about that. But honestly, some of you here tonight just need to receive the truth that God loves you. That's what's going to make you a better lover of God tonight, is just knowing God loves you. In the book of Revelation, the church is described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb, beautifully dressed for her husband, it says in chapter 21. Surely God has chosen this language for a reason. He intends for us to be a passionate people, a people who are utterly in love with our God. But notice that God is the husband. God is the pursuer. All of our love comes as a result of a response to his initiation. In fact, 
for me, I really experienced this in college. I remember avoiding reading a book. Some of you might know Mike Bickle. He's a pastor. He was a pastor in Kansas City, and now he runs International House of Prayer there in Kansas City. Well, he had a book. One of his best books is called Passion for Jesus. And that title just had this wave of condemnation in it over me because I just thought I have zero passion for Jesus. You know, it was non-existent as far as my passion for him. It was how I would feel on my bad days. But <clears throat> little did I know that the whole foundation of, of his book was laid upon uh, God's extravagant love for us. Really, the first half of the book is laying out God's great love for us. And it was a love that Mike Bickle discovered when the day after his son was born, he had an appointment that he had to keep. He couldn't cancel it. So he did this appointment. He was a pastor, 23 years old. And then he rushes home to see his newborn baby. And as he was rushing home, just so full of a desire to see his son, all of a sudden it hit him like a ton of bricks. Wow, if me, being evil, has this desire to see my own son, how much more does the God of the universe have this desire to see and be with me? He understood then, this is God's passion for me. So that must be our foundation, really, for everything we're doing tonight. But what I'd like to do tonight is I'm going to use three primary colors, we'll say. And I'd like to paint a picture of what it looks like for us to be loving God. So this isn't a linear progression. It's just a mixing and matching of some wonderful shades of what the Scripture indicates what loving God can look like. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just going to figure out how I can work this. This is a whole mix of um, <clears throat> items that I hold in my hand. So forgive me. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <clears throat> hmm. Let's see. I don't have an object near them. How about that book? Thank you. Thank you. Scotty, thank you, thank you, thank you. A lot of objects near people, I'm sure. This one will work. Ah, <clears throat> uh, man. This is the one time that I really, really wish that the, uh, the Britney Spears mic worked. That's okay. We love our sound guys. Sound guys, you rock. And I love you. <laughs> and we're going to work it all out. <clears throat> okay. First color. The first color when we're painting this picture of what loving God can look like is called raw obedience. Everyone repeat after me. Raw obedience. There we go. Fun to say. Okay. An undeniable part of our exercising a love for God is this having a raw obedience. In other words, it isn't all the kind of mushy gushies or the feelings we get when we worship. There's a place for raw obedience. And there is no example of raw obedience more appropriate tonight than that of Noah, found in chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis. I don't know if you know this, but the architects of this structure, the very one that we find ourselves in, they deliberately used the wood of the interior here to remind us of the inside of Noah's Ark. Do you see it? That was intentional. And although the actual Ark of Noah would have been about two times the size of this room in every direction, I think the designers have done a great job of giving us a feeling of being in the Ark. What I love about Noah is that for every command that God issued him, we hear this refrain. First, in, in chapter 6, verse 22 of Genesis, it said, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I don't know about you, but that blows me out of the water. Noah did everything that God had commanded him. We hear the refrain again in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And that just hits me like a bullet. And I think, oh, God, I, 
It's too late now. You know, that'll never be the epitaph of my life. <laughs> they can't put that on my tombstone. Lord, I regret it, but I can start now. You know, like Paul says, he says, I press forward. What were some of the commands that God gave? How big and how radical were they? Let's go through them. Chapter 6, verse 14, God said, make for yourself an ark. Make for yourself an ark. In chapter 7, God says to Noah, go into the ark. Go into the ark. And later he says, take with you. Take with you seven pairs of the clean animals, a pair of the unclean. After the flood, he says, come out of the ark. This is the command God gives. And finally, the command that I imagine Noah liked the best, chapter 9, be fruitful and multiply. Good command. Now, this list of commands we have from God may not seem too difficult to us, but you've got to remember the circumstances that Noah was in, right? You know, God was telling him an event from nature that has never happened before is going to happen. You know, will you believe me? Not only believe me, but will you build this, like, insane thing that I'm asking you to build that is just probably ludicrous, you know? And then I imagine after when God says, hey, you can come out now, I just imagine it was like, if I was no, I might have a little fear. Like, God, are you going to do something like this again? What kind of crazy thing is going to come after this, right? But Noah did everything God commanded him. God's calling us to the same kind of raw obedience often. Of course, the best example we can have for pretty much everything, but especially raw obedience, is Jesus. He shows us what it looks like to love God with raw obedience. Remember, come with me into that room. We've been there before, and we, when we did our series on the Holy Spirit, but the room of the Last Supper, that intimate place, him speaking to his friends that he'd been walking with for three, three and a half years, knowing that he's about to be betrayed. He's sharing his parting thoughts in John 14 and a few other places a few chapters after that. And this is what he says in his parting thoughts. He says, he who has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and I will show myself to him. He goes on to say, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Obedience and love. Obedience and intimacy, a prayer that I often pray in the morning is just, Lord, let my love be marked by more obedience and let my obedience for you or to you be marked by more affection. And this doesn't go against our gospel of grace, contrary to most of our thinking. Actually, it fulfills it. You know, grace is not only God's unmerited favor and his forgiveness, but it's the power to obey. We need to realize that's what grace is, power to obey. Of course, Jesus alone was the only one really qualified to say this to the disciples because just a few hours after this utterance, he would find himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to his heart cries. We hear it recorded in Mark 14, 36. He says, Abba, Father, he cried, everything is possible for you. And what was Jesus' prayer? Take this cup from me. But he didn't end there. He said, yet, not what I will, but what you will will. So later it was written of Jesus in Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. Doesn't that blow your minds? If Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God, had to learn obedience through suffering, how much more you and me? I am convinced that God puts each one of us into our own gardens of Gethsemane, where we are forced to make a decision of raw obedience in order to demonstrate our love for him. It doesn't always feel good. There's not a lot of glory at that time. But it's in the secret garden 
there where God invites us to choose him. I think of my wife, Kelsey. Kelsey, when I met her, we were doing Young Life, a ministry to youth. And, and in order for her to be around more youth, she decided to take a job at an ice cream parlor where all the other high school kids were working. And the boss that she had was just a miserable kind of man, not a fun guy to work for. And while, other, while, all, the, while all the high school kids were uh, bad-mouthing him or they just wouldn't show up to work or they'd treat him bad, badly, Kelsey was determined in raw obedience to Jesus to honor this man. And she did with her words. She showed up to work on time. And uh, she wouldn't speak badly with, to him. And uh, for Kelsey, that was just a high order of raw obedience because a man was just not a good person to work for. My question for you today is, what is the Garden of Gethsemane that God has you in? Where does God have you backed up in a corner so you've got to choose raw obedience to him? I think a lot of our sin struggles, you know, the places where we, where we struggle, our strongholds, God wants to break through. And a part of that breakthrough, not all of it, we really need the sovereign grace of God and a lot of the things that we struggle with. But a part of your breakthrough, I guarantee, is a raw obedience, yes, to Jesus, even when it's really hard. Okay, raw obedience. Everyone say raw obedience. Raw obedience. Okay, as we continue to paint this picture of what it looks like to love God, right? We got raw obedience. We also have intimate friendship. Everyone say intimate friendship. <laughs> you were designed for intimate friendship with the God of the universe. Although Genesis 2.25 is often quoted in the context of marriage seminars, one to which Kelsey and I went just two weeks ago, wonderful, as this ideal state of intimacy between husband and wife, which it absolutely is, I think it also speaks to the quality of our relationship with the living God. Genesis 2.25 says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame. I know that God designed us to be naked and unashamed before him, just to be who we were meant to be. Free, alive, unashamed, free from comparison. <clears throat> you know, this past week, I helped my mom begin the insanely ginormous task of helping her prepare her house to be sold. This is the house that she's been in for 40 years, 16 of those with my father. So we began by cleaning out the attic. And in cleaning out the attic, I came across many of the pictures, papers, awards, newspaper clippings, memorabilia of my growing up. You have to understand that when I was a kid, my home was not a very happy place to be, largely because of the tension between my parents and its effects on my brother and me. Although I was a pretty creative, motivated, intelligent, hardworking person, lover of people, I loved life. Nonetheless, a dark veil of gloom started to fight to settle over my heart, over my little heart. And I was just a sad kid in many ways and kind of carried a burden of just this intense kind of hidden pain. And I, I, was, I would often, when I'd see some of these pictures, I, I would be reminded of that. But this time, as I was going through this this last week, I looked over these pictures. I read some of my English papers, right, which, of course, were pretty autobiographical in high school. Even though they give you an assignment, you just talk about yourself. <clears throat> but I began to feel, as I kind of reviewed my life there, I began to feel for me what God must have felt towards me as I was growing up, struggling with my sadness and my pain. An incredible delight is probably what he felt. I felt it. A great joy at who he had created me to be. A burning desire for me to come into fullness as the person he'd created me to be, in spite of the wounds in my life that come straight from the evil one. I felt God's love for me, in short. And I recognized his faithfulness to me over the years. I recognized, God, you sustained me. 
I believe that God wants us all to know this love for each one of us so we can enjoy intimate friendship with him. He wants you to build with him a secret history of faithfulness to your, to your soul so you can enjoy that intimate friendship with God. We need not look further than Moses. Moses, let's remember who he was. Let's remember what he was. Moses was an outcast. Moses was a murderer. I'm saying he's an outcast because he'd grown up in the privilege of the Egyptian court apart from his Hebrew brothers. Moses, the one who couldn't speak and wasn't too confident of his leadership abilities at the beginning, this is the one who God chose for intimate friendship. So it's in the middle of this most incredible and supernatural migration of people. We read about how, Mo- how God would summon Moses to speak with him in the tent of meeting. This is in Exodus 33, 11. It says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. He spoke to Moses as a man speaks with a friend face to face. That was Moses. How much more we are in Christ. We have the privilege of being able to speak with the living God face to face. And I think it's interesting that later in documenting Moses' relationship with God, how does the psalmist describe it? Listen to this from Psalm 103. It says, He made his ways known to Moses, but he made his deeds known to the people of Israel. Moses had a special relationship with God at that point, a relationship that we all now in Christ can have. Moses was invited to know God intimately, to know his ways. The people, they only got to know his deeds. Ways speak of the interior, deeds of the exterior. We, in Christ, get to know God's ways, his thoughts. We get to know his interior to the degree that the Spirit of God lets us in, as we actually read about in 1 Corinthians and talked about in the last series we did. And of course, once again, the best model for everything in the world, but especially for intimacy with the Father, is Jesus. Jesus was accused one day of breaking the law of the Sabbath. Why? Because he had healed an invalid, a man who had been invalid for 38 years, waiting at a pool called Bethesda. Well, Jesus decided to heal this man on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath. And um, as he was being accused, he had this response. He said, I tell you the truth. This is in John 5. I tell you the truth. The Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself also. Beautiful picture of the intimacy that he has with the Father and that all of us are allowed to have also. And just as Jesus enjoyed an intimacy with the Father that helped guide his daily actions and granted him the life he needed, we too are invited into intimate friendship with the God that would guide us and nourish us likewise. Are you enjoying it? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? If not, it's not on his end. It's on our end. We need to get better at cultivating it. I think of a man who cultivated it really well. Gosh, it must be it's hundreds of years ago that he was on the earth. I want to say a thousand, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure if he was 1100s, maybe a little bit later. Somewhere in like the 1100 to 1300 range. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think some of you might know this character. He's a person. His name is Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence, he's just a run-of-the-mill, <laughs> you can call him that, regular old monk in France. 
And I know we kind of have, in the, in the Protestant church, we've kind of lost some of our understanding of, of the monastic movement. But it's kind of like Harbor, we have the Navigate training school. So if you're really wanting to get after Jesus, you go to Navigate. You know what I'm saying? Well, back in the day, if you're getting after Jesus, what do you do is you join the monastic movement. That's where, that's where it's happening. That's where the fire was. And really, it's a wonderful movement that, that preserved Christianity through the, this movement. Well, Brother Lawrence had a great understanding of just abiding with Jesus and friendship with Jesus. The only reason we know about him is because he wrote some letters to someone else to explain what his monastic life was like. And in those letters, he said things like, you know, for me, whether I'm in the time of prayer, or I'm doing my specific duty. And Brother Lawrence was a cook, so he was in the kitchen. That was his job at the monastic, at the monastery. And he said, whether I'm in prayer or whether I'm in the kitchen, I'm with Jesus. And we're walking, and we're talking together, and it's wonderful. Do you know that Jesus wants you to enjoy the same thing? Whether you're on stage leading worship, you're at your job, you're in your dorm, you're in your house, no matter where you are and what your circumstances are, God's desire is that you know him and you walk with him in intimate friendship. That's what he desires. Everyone say intimate friendship. Okay, it's one of the colors here of what it looks like to love God. <laughs> my question is, what do you need to do? How will you this week cultivate that intimate friendship? You know, as I mentioned, if we're not experiencing it, it's not on God's end. It's on ours. He's good. He's available. He's wonderful. Will you receive it? Will you respond to it? <clears throat> the third color with which I want to paint this picture of what it looks like to love God and what we have in mind here at the harbor about a people who are passionate about God, a person. And just Actually, let me interject. I was talking with Josh, our worship leader, beforehand. He said that someone said, you know, if I treated my wife <laughs> like I treated God, I guess I'd be headed for a divorce, you know? I mean, that's kind of extreme. In other words, the person was saying, you know, if I, if I treated God... Um, Sorry, if I treated my wife as poorly as I treat God, we'd be, we'd be in for a, a hard time. And I thought, what I'm trying to bring to mind is, you know, it's true, we, we will give courtesy to, to, to flesh and blood, but the God of the universe often gets kind of the last, um, less emotional bit of us, or not much of us. <clears throat> Third color, which God wants to indicate to us tonight, but what it looks like to love him is that of holy passion. Everyone say holy passion. Holy passion. That is right. I want to make no mistake as to what passion means. Passion means an intense emotional desire. And God is calling his people to be a people of holy passion. And I want to begin this little part by dealing with some of the rumbling that I hear in our midst. And the rumbling goes something like this. Well, I don't want to get too emotional. God's word is truth. I just want truth. In other words, there's a reaction here among some of us who who um, perceive that there are some excesses here about our emotionalism. And while I understand this, I want to tell you about a decision that I made in college. Because when I was in college, I turned a corner and I said, I believe the Bible to be true, and I want to follow this Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I took this Mark 10, 38 to heart. Mark 10, 30, excuse me. Regardless of what profession I end up doing, regardless of my marital status, what it ever is or isn't, Regardless of my geography and regardless of how I'm accepted by my peers, I want to follow Jesus. I made that decision. And then after that decision came <laughs> a decision to 
really engage in the discipline of spending time with Jesus on a regular basis through prayer and study of the Word. But one thing I discovered as I accept my my forehead, so to speak, from Ezekiel to this discipline is that I needed to connect emotionally with the Lord on a regular basis. It wasn't enough for me to just zip through some scripture passages or to throw up to heaven a heartless prayer because I was going to have to live the rest of that day also as an emotional being. I'm not saying that we put all our eggs in that basket. You know, I've got to, you know, we do. We walk by the truth, and and, and truth is what is to lead our emotions. But I know that if I didn't connect with God in in the morning, it wouldn't really be effective for me the rest of the day. So I like to think of this example. Imagine if I'm meeting Jim for coffee, right? Jim and I hang out at Trevi, and imagine if Jim, we've been walking together for about three years now, imagine if we were totally content to just talk about the weather, and then like the Olympics, and then, um, oh, let's talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill, and then we just, you know, we go our separate ways. How unsatisfying and how unlike two friends would that be? That would just be ridiculous. So my question for us is, why are we so content with shallow brushes with the king of the universe? Why, is, why are we so accustomed to having shallow interactions with the Lord? I wouldn't want that with Jim. I make sure that we, you know, we talk about our relationships with our wives, relationships with our kids to be, relationships within our leadership team and the church, how we're doing with our job. You know, we talk about it all because we're close friends. So I'm not saying that I, every time I open this word, I get fireworks or angelic visitations, but I have come to expect that my friend, my intimate friend, the Lord Jesus, will speak to me. That he's going to invite me into a greater obedience every time that we meet. And that I'm going to leave our set-aside time of prayer slightly transformed. I believe that Jesus will ignite a holy passion in me, albeit through the still, small voice, which is how he speaks most commonly. The Apostle Paul was a man set ablaze with a holy passion. What else could cause him to write things like this? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. All you biblical scholars know how to translate rubbish. Poo-poo. I consider them excrement, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is a man possessed by a holy passion. The language is that of a man on fire for God. Note that Paul employs the Greek word, Greek word gnosko for expressing his desire to know Christ in verse 10. This, this Greek word gnosko is the equivalent of the Hebrew when they're talking about knowing someone in the biblical sense, right? Meaning having sexual relations with them, okay? So Paul is obviously indicating a deep, intimate knowing, such as what a husband and wife enjoy on the marriage bed. He wants us to have a passionate and intimate knowledge of Jesus. For Paul, maintaining this holy passion meant a thorough reworking of all his priorities. No longer was he driven by or nourished by the things that had driven him before. And we know that Paul was a driven man. Some of you might be familiar with the DISC classification of personality types. Basically, D being um, someone whose D is dominant. They're they're extroverted but high task-oriented. I, like myself, extroverted but high people-oriented. And I have some D in me too and some C. S, 
S is they're introverted, but but uh, uh, love um, people. They're, they're introverted, but they uh, still are. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just missing. They're they're uh, people oriented, introverted, and then C are the ones who are introverted but task oriented. So, anyways, great. There's, that that whole personality thing has been done in many different ways. That's just one of them. Paul was definitely high D, dominant leader. Get out of my way. Extroverted. He's driven. Before meeting Jesus, he was driven for the purity of the Jewish religion as he persecuted Christians to their death. But after meeting Jesus, kicked off his horse by the Son of God in a vision, God took a hold of this high D personality and used it for his glory. Paul's passion now is for the person Jesus, for the purity of the gospel, for the growth and purity of the church. Paul was set ablaze by a holy passion for God. So I don't care whether you're D, I, S, or C. God wants to set you on fire for him. Use your personality for his glory. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it's by accident that God uses the language of bride and groom to describe our, our relationship to the lamb, to Jesus in Revelation. Notice that Jesus, he's coming back first and foremost, although we are described as a body. We are described as an army. Jesus is coming back for what? For a bride. He is coming back for a bride, a bride who's in love. So that being said, I don't think it's too, well, I don't think at all. I don't think it's biblically irresponsible to look. Of course, we do this carefully, but we can look at the Song of Songs as an allegory for Christ and the church. I realized that the primary purpose of Song of Songs is to describe a love relationship between Saul, uh, pardon me, Solomon and one of his wives. And honestly, Kelsey and I are loving this incredible book on the Song of Songs. It's all about sex and marriage. So we're taking it literally in our house too, and we're loving it. It's wonderful. <clears throat> Sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. I did clear this with Kelsey ahead of time, just so you know. <laughs> But tonight, I want to look at two verses in Song of Songs in light of this fact that when done properly, this book can be taken as an allegory for Christ in the church. Listen to verses 6 and 7 in chapter 8. It says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. What we need today is a church that is set ablaze with holy passion for God. Yes, we need correct doctrine. Paul was very clear in his instructions to Timothy that he was to watch his doctrine. But my fear for the church here in the North Shore, really North America, but especially here, is that while we've been very careful at maintaining sound doctrine, we've done so at the expense of that high view of God that Tozer talked about. The theologically correct church of the North Shore has done little to impact this area for the sake of the gospel. So it's always a both and. It's not an either or. So to our theological correctness, to our sound doctrine, we need to add a passion for God. And the reason I know this is because it's only passionate people that are going to be able to fulfill the Great Commission. Passionate people love God, even when it hurts. And even though we don't understand all the mysterious ups and downs of that love, Passionate people spend time cultivating their relationship with God, even though the business of this culture screams in competition for our attention. Passionate people take risks, leaving their comfort zones, whether it's sharing the gospel with a waiter at Acapulco's or whether it's sharing the, un- the gospel with an unreached people group in Indonesia. Passionate people take risks. They serve the poor, knowing the reward is with their God. Passionate people demonstrate a volunteer spirit. They're not always wondering, what am I going to get back? Passionate people are what's needed. 
You know, the task we mentioned last week, we looked at Matthew twenty four fourteen. It says, in this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Theologically correct people just stay in their theological correctness and don't, and don't move out into where people are hurting and where they're needed. So do you hear the heart cry here of God is, Add to the sound doctrine. Don't, we're not going to fudge one bit of doctrine. We talk all the time on the leadership team, working through some of the bigger issues of doctrine. We don't neglect it, but we add to that a passion for God and for his purposes on the earth. That's how we're going to do what God is calling us to do. So my question for you is, how hot is your passion right now? How hot is your passion right now? Knowing that the God of the universe is willing. If you'll just ask, Lord, will you, will you fan to the flame this, this, this little spark of a passion that I have for you? Will you fan into the flame? The answer from heaven is yes, yes, yes. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. I'm going to ask you to stand. Why don't you stand with me now? How are you doing in loving God? Are you in need a little more raw obedience? Are you missing someone intimate friendship? Are you lacking in holy passion? Whichever one of those areas, or two of them, or all three, you lack, all you need to do is ask God, Oh God, more grace to obey you when it counts. Oh God, more grace to know you as an intimate friend. And oh God, stoke in me this holy flame, a holy passion, so that I can be all that you need me to be in this day and this age, a passionate people.